for joining us for this episode of MC Fireside Chats with your host, Brian Searle. Have a suggestion for a show idea? Want your campground or company in a future episode? Email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Get your daily dose of news from moderncampground.com. And be sure to join us next week for more insights into the fascinating world of outdoor hospitality. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of MC Fireside Chats. My name is Brian Searle with Insider Perks. Super excited to have a brand new intro. This is the second week, guys, that I've had the intro, and I didn't realize how much I care but don't care about the intro, but it's nice to just change it up and have a new spicy thing, right, that we can look at with different imagery and stuff like that. It's been like a year and a half, so finally did that. I don't know if it's better or worse. Nobody needs to judge me live on air, but you can privately think that it's terrible or good. Uh, but thanks uh, for joining us again. We're super excited to be here for our glamping-focused episode, which happens the second week of every month. We've got Zach and Zach from Clockwork. Uh, we've got Connor Schwab from Sage Outdoor Hospitality, both joining us as recurring guests. And we've got two special guests. We've got Chris from, is it Monument Glamping? I'm terrible with reading notes, Chris. And he's a YouTube star. Uh, a couple million subscribers, I think, right? Uh, working his way to a couple million subscribers, I think, is what I really wanted to say. Uh, and then we've got... Vidar, did I do that right? Yeah, that's perfect. I put it five <laughs> times before we started, but I got it right. Vidar from Nordic Lamping in the UK is going to talk a little bit about his stuff and projects that he has going on. So, uh, you know, Connor, you weren't here before we started the show. You just kind of jumped on briefly. We did, we were going to talk about some of Zach's projects that he's going to work. He's been working on recently. He's got a well, a bunch of people who are coming to him for all kinds of things, as I'm sure you do too. But um, Talk a little bit about what you've got going on, Zach, and we'll lead into some of these really cool projects that Vidar and Chris have going on too. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, we're we're actually really excited. Um, you know, we've been extremely busy through through the summer. Um, it, development seems to kind of be uh, seasonal, right? Like everybody wants to be under construction during the, the spring and summer months. And so you back up from that, uh, plans and permitting is in the fall. And so um, there, there's, tends to be kind of peak times of the year where we get more inquiries about developing new resorts. And then there's kind of some downtime, some off time um, where things slow down a little bit. We get caught up on some of our projects. Um, and, and this year we didn't see a slowdown. Um, it's been pretty sustained, um, you know, two, three, four calls a week about new projects, new development, new opportunities. I've probably written more proposals in the last two months um, than I did in the previous six months this year. Um, so things are definitely, you know, ramping up, which is, it's good. Um, you know, I think there's, especially sort of state of politics in, in the country, um, heading into elections soon. There's a lot of people that are, are somewhat more, you know, cautious or less likely to invest in things with, with some of those uncertainties. And, um, it's encouraging that at least in the outdoor hospitality, we're, we're not seeing a slowdown. Um, I think some of the conversations I've had with, with lenders, with banks, with private equity, there's still a lot of capital available for these projects. Um, there's still a lot of, of uh, faith and, and I guess uh, consumer confidence in this industry. So yeah, it's, it, it's been moving along very well. Um, and, and I've got you know folks like you, Brian and, and Connor to thank. Um, a lot of our success in this industry has been um, you know, the Connor's part, not mine. I don't really, <laughs> you blame Connor for that one. You know, it's, it's our partners, right? It's all the people that we work with. Um, and, and then doing, doing a good job for our clients and delivering what we say we're going to do. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. Um, we, as far as like project updates, uh, we've had two projects that we've recently gone through the, the planning and zoning um, piece to get either the, the site plans approved or special use permits approved. Um, and both of those projects, uh, were, were approved. So moving forward, that's always good news in our, our business. 
Um, and then uh, just this week, we've signed uh, contracts on three new developments. One in in California will be our first project in California, um, which I, I think you know over the years we've had a couple of those opportunities and kind of passed on it because of the regulatory environment, the state, um, yep. kind of the anti-business, anti-development. Um, but you know, we finally came across a project and a group, um, a client that we couldn't say no to. Um, it was just an incredible opportunity. So very excited to to be starting that project. So I'll be out uh, out to visit the property and and meet the owners and, and do kind of a kickoff this next week. Um, and then uh, continued interest in Georgia. Um, we did our first project in Georgia about a year and a half ago. Um, we just got construction permits on on that, so they're underway. Um, and a lot of continued sustained interest in the state. Um, we've looked at four or five projects, but we just went under contract on on a new project down there uh, near Providence Canyon State Park. And then uh, the third one, um, client we've been kind of working with on and off over several months, um, trying to find the right property. We looked at a lot of different options, came up, did a couple visits. Um, they finally got under contract. Um, actually, the very first property that we looked at, the, the one that was kind of their dream property. Um, nice. So super excited for them that, that they got the land uh, going. So we'll be starting the planning and zoning process and master plan design on that. Um, so very excited for them that they've they found a place to land and um, excited to move forward with them. So, but yeah, all, all good things. It continues to amaze me just how many variables go into like I've been in this industry for I don't know, like it keeps adding a year every year and I for somehow somehow I get older. So I keep wanting to say 12, but I feel like it's been 15 now. But every year that I go into this business, you think, you know, like there's like I continually know so much stuff. Right. And then you continue to talk to people like Zach and Connor and Chris and Vidar and you just learn something new every week about how much goes into this and the development process and the permitting and the land use selection and the ebbs and flows of the business. And and it's really kind of interesting to me because I think for me and, and obviously I was wrong, but for me, like a year ago, I would have told you that there's going to be some hesitancy with interest rates and stuff like that. And I, I don't think we're seeing that at all because I think people can build that into their purchase prices. But I think that we're right now, we're at least on the campground side, obviously not on the glamping side that you're talking about, we're seeing a pause in acquisitions temporarily because the asking price has not yet come down to what the realistic price is, given the change in interest rates and the economy and all that kind of stuff, at least in not all cases. But is that kind of what you guys are seeing? But it's just interesting to me in general, just the ebb and flow of how so many things have to converge to make everything perfect. Yeah, I would say I think you know, a lot of the work that we're doing is new ground up, new development. So greenfield sites. Um, I, I think it's a little bit different looking at the acquisition model. Um, yeah. And I think that that's, that's probably absolutely true with respect to some of those. Um, we do have some of those projects. Uh, the other thing I think that the, the interest rate climate has created, we're seeing a, a big increase in project interest on leased land. Um, where somebody's coming in and saying, you know, we're not, we're not going to drop, uh, you know, a couple million dollars to, to acquire acres of land, um, but we're interested in in leasing this, even on, you know, the, the more massive development side. We have uh, established real estate developers that are looking at, can I get a, a lease from the Corps of Engineers for a lake, or can I get a lease from a city on some underutilized park space or, or public lands? Um, and I think that for a long time there, people were kind of scared off of the lease and, and investors said, no, you know, the, the real estate is the asset. That's the value. That's what we're interested in. So they weren't considering lease deals. Um, and we've seen a lot more interest in, in development projects in outdoor hospitality on leased land. Do you think that's because of the interest rate change or that just has nothing to do with yeah. I'm an idiot? No, I, I think well, I actually you, got one, right? I never get no, right. you're, you're right. You're right. Um, you know, when you look at the model, right, the, the overall financial model, um, you know, when you're doing your, your projections and things, you, you always have some sort of a debt payment, right? It's yep. a loan, something that covers both the building and construction as well as the land acquisition cost. And, and so I think, you know, you treat a lease payment as the same thing, right? It's, 
it's a controlled cost. It's a set amount. Um, but what it has done is if I needed to, to sink, you know, $3 million into land acquisition and then another $3 million to build out my resort, um, now, you know, that became a $6 yeah. million project. So when, when interest rates were low, that was doable. Now that we're seeing interest rates approaching 10, 12, 15%, um, you know, people look and say, well, gosh, if I lease the land, my operating expenses, my budgeting is the same, except I don't have the upfront $3 million purchase price of the land. I've got a controlled set amount for the next, you know, 25 to 50 years. Um, and, and they look at just as another, you know, operating expense or a, a debt payment. Um, and, but it keeps the upfront investment lower. Now I only am financing the build out, the construction cost of something. So when interest rates go up, we're always looking for more creative ways to still make the budget work, still make the numbers work mm. and not having a land acquisition cost in a, a development project make is a easier. big way to bring that down. Yeah. Yeah. If I can. Pipe in and, and say something. Yeah, I was just going to ask the glamping guy for his thought. Yeah. Introduce yourself first, though, Chris, please, so they know who you are. Oh, yeah. I'm Chris Jube. I, I own Monument Glamping here in Monument, Colorado. Uh, we have two properties, 12 units open right now. Uh, we're in a 21-day review right now to get up to 20 units. So that's that's kind of where my level of glamping is. And um, and it's going really well. Uh, and and I, I'm in a lot of different uh, glamping groups or little focus groups that, that, that I, I touch base with other glampers all over the country. And um, uh, American Glamping Association is one of them. I saw you guys in the meeting just an hour ago. And and uh, the, the general consensus is that we're not seeing, there's an Airbnb dirge right now. Uh, people, all the Airbnb gurus are complaining about how Airbnb is falling apart and it's not, not quite the uh, easy investment that it used to be, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of doom and gloom out there with short-term rentals. And us glampers are kind of going, we're not seeing it. I mean, it's, we're booking out. Because we're, glamping's harder. Nothing should be as easy as Airbnb was in the beginning. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and then, Nothing like that is sustainable uh, if it's not easy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, the uh, So anyway, glamping is, uh, is going fantastic. I'm, uh, I've got more good news than bad news. The bad news is just the general operational stuff that just goes on with the, with the, with the program and, and, but it's all good. I, I, I'm, I'm having a blast here in Colorado doing what I'm doing. And, uh, and I'm glad you called me the glamping guy, Brian, you're one of my <laughs> on, on YouTube. You go to glampingguy.com and see, I, I'm, I'm a teacher at heart. Mm. I left teaching to do glamping full time. Uh, and that's that's my story. So I've, this is my fifth season into running a glamping operation. My wife and I love it, uh, but I feel like I'm hoarding all this awesome knowledge and awesome development. So glampingguy.com is my journal, you might say, of my blogging and vlogging journal of uh, of stuff I'm doing. I just, just released- be careful because I thought I was that guy too, and then I started talking to smart people like back and honor <laughs> and realize. Think no, twice about yeah, the claiming to be the glamping guy, but you know the URL was available. I'm sure you right? got it, but I don't have it. It's all I'm saying. Grab it. <laughs> Continue though, please. I'm sorry. Oh, well, yeah, that's that's just uh, well. Here here's my here's my story, Brian, and and anybody who's watching. So, in 2019. I was a teacher and I had the summers off and I owned a curriculum company on the side. And we have a beautiful piece of property that we moved into 23 years ago. Uh, but it, but it's, a, it's a fixer upper and then we remodeled the bedroom and we moved my, I built a platform outside and I put my hunting tent up on the, on the platform and moved my master bedroom outdoors. And Wendy and I loved this. I mean, we had a great time for a month and a half. Instead of sleeping in the living room, we were out there under canvas and just, just having a great time while we were doing this remodel. And after the remodel, we decided to put it up in Airbnb to see what would happen. We booked out the rest of the summer. I couldn't believe it. You know, my hunting gear that's usually in storage was actually making me money. And uh, and then the next summer we put up two tents. And then the next summer we did three tents and three container homes. That's kind of another story where we, I'm in one of my container homes right now. And we started developing these things. And, um, um, and then that's when I started getting into trouble. We started talking about... Uh, 
uh, zoning and planning and, and all that, the building. Well, I started getting yellow jackets in my front yard. I call them yellow jackets. They show up in your front yard wearing a yellow jacket with a badge, and they say, we're from the government, and we're here to help. Yeah, it's really ridiculous. We should just all get together <laughs> as glamping people and start our own country somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Like, like regulation on everything except glamping. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think they could easily take over the UK at this point, you know, and, and we know that they're they're already friendly towards glamping, right? They're, no. we, we'd be able to turn enough of the existing ones to our side. Yeah, yeah. I think the challenge is that is I I think we are actually seeing a bit of a inflation in the markets when it comes to the amount of glamping sites that's gone up over the last few years, and every landlord wants to do it because. Well, we would um, just get rid of inflation for you. That yeah, be part just of have to get rid of inflation. Yeah. No, I think with because um, there's been massive encouragement from the government uh, to to do this, and there's actually even though planning rules are really really strict in the UK when it comes to houses and land use and so on, when it comes to actual glamping, it is quite easy, and. Um, a lot of landlords wants to do it because of that and you can you can legally have a a site up for 28 days so while they actually change it to 60 days now um definitely in my county um without planning permission you need to notify the planners so they can come and have an inspection on your site but um it's um it's very easy to to get stuff up and running if you have some gear and knowledge obviously <laughs> so what is what is nordic glamping tell us nordic glamping is is basically me um it's um i always you know, all I was the best things start man is just with you <laughs> yeah it is it's less less pro less problems less conflicts um anyway i was super uh, i got super interested in uh in in yurt structures by reading some articles online and in a couple of magazines and then we started looking into the me and my wife we love to travel and and uh, she didn't like to to go camping so she but she was happy to go glamping so we we stayed in various yurts and various other structures um started doing that about eight years ago eight nine years ago here in the uk mainly because the scene was already pretty established here. Um, and uh, it was just a pleasurable way of, of, of holidaying. And uh, and I thought, no, I'd, I'd, I'd start building some structures myself because I'm, I'm pretty hands-on. I'm from a family of furniture makers so on the west coast of Norway. So so I, I just, yeah, started it a few years back. <laughs> hmm. So I do, at the moment... I as so I'm sitting in one of my yurts here, um, rent them out for festivals, for uh, weddings and events that need uh, somewhere for people to stay. I currently don't have like big wedding yurts and stuff. Um, that's an investment I haven't chosen to take on yet. Um, but yeah, no, it's all pretty low key. Um, in a conversation with various landlords uh, about starting up sites because uh, as you say interest rates and what they call it like the cost of living crisis we call it here in the uk has impacted people's affordability so that is hitting me i would say um, significantly uh, people rather pay like a third of a cost to to rent a cheap belt tent than a yurt with a wooden floor and a, a wood burner so so i i have to i have to utilize my yurts in a different way because i have a portfolio of yurts that um are spending too much time sitting inside another yurt for storage <laughs> so so that's um that's kind of where we are um but yeah so market uh, the rental market is challenging but uh glamping market is still it's still going strong but i there is a lot of sites um, popping up these days, so I'll be interesting to 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 speak to a lot of my contacts by the end of a uh, end of a season and at the local, well, the UK glamping show, which is in mid September. Uh, get some updates there. That's really good. Good show uh, in the Midlands here in the UK. So uh, yeah, David, you mentioned um, kind of your background 
Um, mm. Did you build your yurts or did you source them through a, a supplier? And, and if so, who? No, I, I build them all from scratch. So it's all steam bent hardwood um, with a heavy duty canvas from, uh, I use a supplier that has a long history of uh, supplying like military canvas. So it's really durable stuff. It's, uh, it's uh, a mix of cotton and polyester. So it feels and looks like, like cotton, but it's far more durable and, uh, and really good stuff. Uh, lasts for years 10 decades <laughs> so yeah mm, do you do you think I, I do, it all myself. do you think that that is because to me that is right from a marketing guy perspective but also from a consumer perspective and i know this isn't everybody right but that's a difference maker to me the handmade the quality mm. difference in the personal touch so have you yeah. thought about or do you already i'm sure you do a little bit market that way yeah, I need to up my marketing. Uh, that, that's for sure. I've tried to use a company. I wasn't too happy with it, but I think I need to to spend more effort. And I was quite quite pleased to 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 be introduced to the YouTuber here as well. That's something I thought about. Maybe doing a doing a kind of a workshop video shots and stuff like that to introduce people to the materials and how it's handled, how things actually come to life. Um, so. So that's something I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite interested in. And, and Vidar, are, are you doing business in uh, in Norway or in the UK? Um, no, I'm not doing business in Norway at the moment. It's a bit of a hurdle with the whole Brexit thing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, not at the moment. Okay, so this is all happening in the UK. And, yeah, and, you're, no, using, hmm. and you're renting yurts out for temporary events. So set up takedown yeah. in like a week yeah. or two or a couple of days. Yeah. Wow. So you're the first person I've heard of doing temporary or like event stays with a yurt. Obviously it's quite common with, with glamping bell tents. Yeah. Um, but how long does it take you to set one of those up and take them down? Uh, two hours pitching with a wood burner, all the interior and a wooden floor. So wow. it's not too bad. Mm. And that's, that's, just, that's just one man. So, yeah. Wow. Are you, and then are you selling the units? Yeah, I have them for sale as well, so I am selling them. Yeah. Okay. okay. Connor Great. will take twenty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's a cool. It's a cool I'm story, sure and can, I think. I'm sure we can go off with a trade deal between the UK and the US. That's, it's in the it's in the working, I believe. <laughs> well, and I think you having like lineage in a uh, like West Coast Norwegian furniture making family is a really cool story. Um, yeah, so it is. making it sure is. people are aware of that. Um, yeah, it's nice to know that it's, yeah, there's, there's a story and a person and a craftsman behind it. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I need to get, get, I need to get some years over and take some pictures of, uh, of the West coast. It's not, it's not a bad place. It is <laughs> the pretty, best place. Pretty, ever. <laughs> pretty, pretty, the days that it doesn't rain ridiculously. So yeah. It's yeah. interesting, though, like we talked earlier in the beginning, right, about the ebbs and flows and, and all the different things that go into the market. But from a, just a marketing standpoint, too, you see that a little bit, at least I do in my world, from the ebb and flow of like sometimes we think consumers care about the story. Sometimes we think they do. And then it kind of and I don't know whether that follows the economy the whole time. I don't think it does. And I think we tend to just kind of overestimate the course correction that people are doing. And maybe it doesn't fluctuate as much as we think. But I for sure think that's a great story that you should embrace. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I was just going to say that too, V. Um, check out Davis Tent. I, I, I buy their Davis Tent, davistent.com. I buy their tents out of Denver. And, and one of the reasons I go with them is because they have a lot of their story in it. Now, the, the Davis mm -hmm. family, well, there's one Davis that still works there, but it's owned by somebody else. But the Davis family, they, they kept that, that brand because of the story. And yeah. they're, they're, they're mountain hunters and, and, and they, they, but they have like videos where they talk about what you talk about the fabric and why their 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 canvas is top of the line canvas and they compare it to the Cabela's garbage and stuff you know, things like that. They they have those kinds of how to lock a tent. Can, you know you can lock a tent. There's a video yeah. where Chris Davis is actually showing how to lock it up, and and uh, those kinds of things. And, and mm. as well as a, they they boast about being a 50 year old <laughs> tent manufacturer. Yeah. And that story, the, 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 the story element, I mean, Mike Lepers really do appreciate to know 
that there's a story that they're staying in. They're staying in this campus. I have their brochure and my, in our, in our, in our welcome book and, and stuff. So yep. they can see, Hey, these are Davis tents out of Denver, Colorado. And, uh, and that becomes part of their experience is the story of the, of the structure. Well, that's the thing. And I think it always will be right. Part of that story. So <laughs> even if you go into like boutique hotels, right. I think there's a tendency sometimes from a, if I'm a marketer trying to reach as many people as I can at scale, that this more, I don't want to call it a niche audience, but a lesser audience of people who will go stay at a boutique hotel versus just whatever is cheaper or whatever the chain they stayed at always is. Right. But I think it's a big enough audience that for, and I think it's growing too. Would you agree with that? I don't know if your data shows that Connor, but I feel like boutique hotels, boutique glamping niche is growing in popularity versus. the Yeah. Other I think ex experiential hospitality, which is kind of tied in with a story, I think is uh, all I've heard is good things. And I think, and I think conscious capitals is a big, becoming a big driver and eco-friendly. And I think there is always going to be customers and maybe it's the majority of customers that are going to purchase based off price. Um, but I think there's a, a growing segment who wants to put their money, wants to put their money towards, towards <clears throat> a business or a person that, um, you know, they feel good about. And for sure, I think there's a balance there, right? So let's just, just a good example, right? Is me pivoting that we said, I was, said before I was going to talk to Iceland about Iceland real quick, right? So we're planning this trip, me and my girlfriend to Iceland at the beginning of September for two weeks. And we're not going to go around the whole ring road because we want to drive six hours a day, right? We're going to take the whole kind of <laughs> south coast or whatever and do take our time. And so we're researching accommodations. And I don't know if anybody's too familiar with Iceland, but like Reykjavik is the main city there. And then there are tiny, tiny little cities everywhere else. But for the most part, accommodations are few and far between in the typical way that we would think of there's a Marriott and a Hilton on every corner. And so really, these chain hotels don't exist outside of that landscape. So your choices are a couple hotels here and there or guest houses, which are like the communal like hostels right in Europe uh, or like these new glamping startups that are all over the place. And so you'll mm. see these that have popped up in these fields in Iceland that are domes that you can look at the stars that are unique, you know, little cave things that are right. And, and all kinds of different stuff. The problem for us is they're just, there's they're, when I'm talking about the middle ground, right. Is I want to support boutique. I want to support small, but for one, Iceland is more expensive than everywhere else. It's one of the most expensive places in the world, but we were looking at some of these glamping accommodations. They're 900 bucks a night versus the hotel. That's really nice down the street. Right. That may not be in the middle of nowhere. may not have that same experience is three to 500. And that's a big gap no matter what your income level is. So I think there's there's that balance that we're still struggling to find, whether it's in Iceland or the US or Canada or wherever else, between like, we want people to make money, but they're like, how much can you really support realistically out of your pocketbook, especially with an interest rate, increasing food prices, all that kind of stuff. Well, that would go to the, that would go to the argument that they're, they're charging $900 a night because they can. Oh, sure. I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm not saying they should lower prices at all. Yeah, but experiential glamping is mm. outplaying the the standard Marriott's. And, and, and that's... Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, not necessarily in Iceland, just because of the smaller cities, there's just not enough for a Marriott to exist anywhere outside of Reykjavik. Or just a hotel. Like you're saying hotels yeah. are $300 versus experience at $900. That's... Uh, Wow, that's that is quite the gap. I mean, I think it's yeah. unique, right? So, like, if you look at like when we're traveling in these tiny towns, there's literally like two hotels, four hotels, two hotels. That's it, and they're three to four hours apart from each other. So, I think it's a demand consequence too. Mm -hmm. Just there's not enough room. Yeah, but but to the point earlier, you know, when we talk about experiential based hospitality, that nine hundred dollars is not what you're paying for the accommodation. It's it's what is the experience that's being delivered with that? You know, I can't lay in a bed in a Marriott and look up and see the Northern Lights. Um, I'm not, you know, greeted with some beautiful panoramic view out of a, a hotel window that's, you know, this far from the building next door. Um, Which you want. So I think you want to go in a, to a hotel. You want to go experience Iceland. Right. And so I, I think that's that's one of those differentiators that when we look at experiential based hospitality that we're saying, you know, if you, if you're the consumer that is only looking at the price point 
or or and I think availability and, and market probably ties into that a little bit as well. But if the bottom line is all that you care about, glamping will never compete with traditional hospitality. If you want the cheapest place to stay for a night, go stay in a hotel. But you also um, don't want those people. Right. No, and, and we're not we're not targeting those people. Right. You know, the people that have come to glamping, the people that are seeking that experience are willing to pay more for it so long as there's a perceived value in what they're getting. You know, if somebody books that at nine hundred dollars a night and shows up and and it's a you know crappy unit with a hard bed with sheets you're not sure when the last time they were laundered and and they've got you know a, a composting toilet in the corner right like yeah. that's not a premium yeah. guest experience and their perception of value is going to look and say gosh you know that was really expensive for no more than it is yeah. um so i think as long as you're delivering an experience that is is commensurate with your price point and the market will dictate that right like you put that out there at four or five hundred bucks. People see the pictures, and you don't get any bookings. You're you're trying to exceed the value that's perceived by what you're presenting. Um, and let, and, me, and let you know, me clarify: like I'm not I'm not suggesting that I'm not arguing in favor of lowering prices at all. Like more power to them. No. Your rate it is the experience. I just my when we were talking about consumers, right? I think that as there becomes more of a middle ground between four and five hundred, that more consumers would be willing to support there than they would at nine if they want to support and, a boutique hotel story type thing. And I think part of that discussion then goes back to operations, right? Like you could lower your price below market value and be a hundred percent full. And you're going to be doing a lot more work to take care of it. You're going to be paying, you know, more fees, more operational costs and expenses um, for, for a lower return, a lower revenue, you know? So, uh, you know, I think, especially when we approach design on glamping resorts, that's one of the reasons it's so important to be informed. That's why we look at, at you know, Connor's market analysis to, to see how many units can we support in this area and then figure out what is the average ADR? Where, where is that market? Do we think we're above or below it with what we're delivering? And then where's that sweet spot where we're making our clients the most money in the market that they're in um, with, you know, the, the least amount of kind of headaches from, from operations? Um, so I, I think that that it's all, higher? it's all a balance. Do you find that that's in your research with Connor or anybody else? Do you find that that's the price point? Like, is it that high though? Or is that just, I feel like that's just Iceland. Like certainly under cannabis has, and collective retreats has really nice, right? Six, $700. And certainly there are some resorts that charge upwards of a thousand, but is there a number that you think is a, for a luxury type glamping resort that they could consistently make average wise across the States? You know, as always, I like to say it depends. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, okay, fine. You know, I'd, I'm going to put you on the spot uh, here. I'll let Connor weigh in on, on the APR discussion or the question. Um, but what I would say is, you know, there is precedent. There are there are examples. Yeah. You know, if we, we look at the model created by places like Dutton Hot Springs or, or the resort at Plaza, right? Those are two to $3,000 a night. Um, they're they are able to demand those higher rates because of the exclusivity of what they're creating, right? Um, when you look at their staff to guest ratio, you know, they may have 15 or 20 guests and 60 staff to take care of them because they're delivering a premium experience. You know, you're not microwaving a cup of noodles in your tent. You're coming down and you've got a, a Michelin rated chef that is crafting a three course meal specifically for you with locally sourced ingredients. Um, you know, anything you want to drink, they have it. Um, and so I think it, it just plays back to that. What is the experience and, and what can you command for the experience that you're delivering? Again, I agree. And I want to let Connor, I'll let you, Connor, I'll go into it in one second. And I agree with you. I think, I think my thing is, is, is certainly that experience for sure commands that rate. Certainly an experience in the middle of the field next to a waterfall or a nice mountain in Iceland for sure commands that price. But how much of a market is there? Like how many resorts can there be that charge two or $3,000 a night before the American consumer runs out of people who can afford that is my question. Well, I think you could look at the hotel market um, as an indicator for 
for where we might go, you know, 20 to 30 years from now and see, you know, what percentage of hotels are, are five-star um, or, or luxury. So that's probably the best looking glass we have into the future. Okay. Um, in terms of, so this is, this, this question is something that I spend a lot of time looking at and, and researching. And I, I actually did this for a client because they wanted to know, yeah, what, what would put you up? over a thousand for an ADR. And I think it's important to remember that average daily rate is truly the average of all the rates that you charge per night that Love year. That, yeah. So if you're saying that your average daily rate is over a thousand, then that means you have some that are, you know, 13, $1,400 and some that are probably eight, $700, depending on seasonality and weekday versus weekend. Um, but for something to be, have an ADR and across all their units. We also see, you know, it's pretty common that a property might have, you know, a honeymoon suite or one particularly luxury or a couple particularly luxury units or waterfront spots that are getting over a thousand. But as far as the site where across all of its glamping units, it's getting an ADR over a thousand dollars is probably less than 20, probably be between 10 and 20 in the U S right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, usually that probably comes down to exclusivity, guest to staff ratio, um, are probably kind of the two biggest things. So I don't know if that answer your question, Brian. I think so. I mean, I'm just trying to really prompt it and explore, you know, the dialogue more. I'm definitely not claiming I know because I don't. You gentlemen know way more, way better than I do. So it's just interesting to me. That's all. Like I'm trying to give the best advice I can to the people who are watching this show who are interested in starting a glamping unit projects or who already have and are trying to figure out where do I go? Do I target the high end, the mid end, the, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd be interested, Chris and, and Vidar, um, where where are you guys at in, in your markets? What what are you looking at? You know, What has your guest response been? Mm -hmm. What have you found kind of different times of the year? Um, and, and how has that influenced sort of how you've developed, how you've grown? yeah so i would say i mean uk is 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 different uh, well england and oxfordshire where i'm based england you you would have a typically a five to six month season um for a a glapping side of it with tent-based structures um you're you're going to struggle to get people into a, a damp yurt in the, in the middle of the winter that is uh, for for the people with an yeah acquired taste. So that's why most people do this on a season seasonal basis. Whereas I know there are high end sites, and I've studied in some of them um, that do all year round. But they will have supportive structures and restaurants and enough things where people enough structures and enough support structures to 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 justify staying there midwinter when it's like seven degrees and rainy um it's still comfortable so there are quite a few i don't know if you have the shepherd's hut over in uh, in the us it's basically a box on wheels <laughs> normally not that big normally like two and a half by five meters um structures where would always with a wood burner and a, and a double bed that's normally what all of them have the name to just add on with kitchens and showers and flushing toilets and stuff so they some of the higher end sites here they they struggle to charge more than 250 pounds a night uh i would say there are there are there are obviously um those in the market that charge more but it's um it's it's different <laughs> it's different to the high end sites in the us that's for sure and iceland so yeah um my experience from norway is that there are some high-end sites there but they they struggle to charge more than three three and a half thousand four thousand knock a night and that includes a on-site chef in a small environment that would cook like steaks in front of you on a on a grill in the middle of nowhere and there will be hot tubs and lakes for wild swimming and so on. Um, yeah, but uh, it's um, <laughs> it's 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 a diff. It, there are different markets, and here glamping is pretty well established. And you can you can stay in a bell tent for like seventy seventy pounds. So just about a hundred yeah. bucks US. Eighty yeah. eighty bucks 
Mm -hmm. But I. Yeah, and uh, if I can answer the question, this is uh, I got so many ideas that are coming out of this discussion because uh, uh, I really like the the idea of experience, experience clamping, and I've kind of experimented with that idea uh, over the last five years. Uh, just to give you some examples, one we had uh, what was called a Colorado cookout. Now I don't have a chef coming and doing all this stuff. That's not that's not that's not my thing. And um, something just happened to my computer. Can you guys see me still? Uh, yep, we can, we, can see, we can see you in here. Yeah. Something just happened on my computer. Anyway, um, so uh, we did a Colorado cookout. And the, the idea is that I, I kind of want to have my, my glampers come and be self-sufficient as possible. You know, like, like a self-check-in and, and things like that. I'll come by. I even say this in my, my communications with them, that we, we, we want to give them their space uh, and but, and we don't want to be overwhelming to them. Uh, like, you know, oh, oh, hey, how you doing? And stuff like that. I just, I get turned off of that when I travel that way and, and the host is too friendly. Um, so we make that clear up front so that their expectation is they can come and they can just stay. Colorado Cookout, we we would provide them at four o'clock a cooler with with uh, some hamburgers or buffalo burgers or something like that. And then and then uh, some chips and some some toppings, buns and stuff. And they can grill their own food. That was that was a thing we were providing for 50 bucks and a number of people came up with it. That became we don't do that so much anymore, but uh, but that was an option. Um, and and oh, actually, we make our own wine. So this is something Ooh. we give our, kid, uh, our kids, our uh, our glampers with. This is glamping. This is this is my first tent tent that i told you about that i put up this is my hunting tent. i just want to point out that i talked to chris about marketing like a year ago and he promised me a bottle of wine i never got it so <laughs> <laughs> i probably did i promise make a lot of promises of this wine i will gladly give you one this is glamping cabernet made in monument colorado and the, it says cheers to your outdoor experience and so i gift this to everybody who comes and then i also invite them to a wine tasting i gotta tell you guys that is the most enjoyable Thing we do in our whole glamping operation is when when a guest says, "Hey, we would like to pay for a wine tasting," and they pay us thirty dollars, and we cut show up with two bottles of homemade wine, which I think is a great deal, and uh, we could probably charge more. But and then we sit down and and we the the cue of getting to know them is is hey, ask us about our wine making, and then they usually are very curious and they they ask about how we make it and what we do and stuff. And that just lends to a conversation, and then and then we sit and we we drink for for an hour, sometimes two. There's been times one our longest four hours sat there, and then we kept pulling the wine out of the cellar and just having a great time with these guests who who were paying for the experience. And it was it was you see how that's kind of a backdoor to getting to know our clients, showing up and demanding that we get to know them. Um, that that was was really. It was really nice. And and the people who leave, especially with their wine tasting, they leave and they feel like they're friends. They, they will come back. They're going to repeat. Yeah, they're going to they're going to come. They're going to re recommend us to all their friends. And I think that adds to the kind of the snowball effect of the, the success of mine and clamping is that we get a lot of what I call staycationers. And you know what those are. They're, they're people from where I'm at. I'm right in between Denver and Colorado Springs and people people just busting out of their apartment building and, and want to have an outdoor experience. So they come and, and they, um, and we, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now I, it's not the chef making the homemade three, three course meal for them, but it doesn't need to be right. And I think we've hammered, no. we've talked about this on the show before. And, and I, I don't think I need to tell this to anybody on this show. Right. But it is it, for the people who are listening, maybe, and this is why we keep talking and bringing it up, right? It's the experience. It doesn't matter if it's the ritzy high-end $3,000 night experience with the Michelin star chef or the $300 experience with the Colorado cookout or the wine tasting. It's all about what, it, like setting expectations. What are you going to offer your guests? Who's your target market? Make sure you're reaching those people, telling them exactly what you want, getting the guests into your glamping resort that are your targeted guests. So they're expecting and appreciative of the experience you're providing and that's it it's yep. all about the experience whether that's a field in iceland or a three thousand dollar escape in montana or whatever it is right and, well, the, and, and i think and it goes back to the hosted experience you know chris what you're describing there what you're selling is yourself 
Yep. You know, you're you're providing something that's a unique experience. Now, there there may be an underlying you know piece in there, right? Like obviously they have to like wine to start, um, <laughs> or that that's the the mechanism that we're facilitating this this whole experience, right? But that's not what they're paying for. They're not paying for the wine. They're paying for the time. They're paying for you as a host to sit down and and there's as much you know storytelling and entertainment and and jokes and recommendations you know i can go and and for 250 bucks get a night at the embassy suites that has an amazing bar downstairs that i can drink you know crappy cabernet at at 12 to 16 dollars a glass for as long as i want that night and and maybe if i get a good bartender they'll chat me up a little bit while i'm there so when we look at you know what what's the spend for what's the deliverable if it's just accommodations if it's just a meal you know there's an equivalency there so why do people seek out glamping instead um they're searching for that hosted experience that connection with a proprietor a person that's sitting down and talking to them and getting to know them well, you know what do you guys have planned tomorrow oh we thought we'd head up to this place oh it's really cool you know you definitely you should go check that out i know the owners have been friends um, you know, let me call ahead and, and I'll tell them you're coming, you know, to expect you guys like that's the differentiator between a hosted glamping experience and, you know, hospitality. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think I disagree with you. I mean, I will always choose that hosted, not necessarily glamping all the time, right? It depends on my needs and where I'm going. But I always choose that boutique, smaller experience if I can over a corporate chain, unless they're up here to sweet and Marriott, which is a different story. But um Anyway, uh, but I will always try to choose that, right? I think, I think the only difference for us in Iceland specifically, why we chose a hotel is because it's few and far between to find a restaurant too. So when you go to these glamping sites, like they're literally, I'm talking about four set up in the middle of a field. You have to go grocery shopping and cook your own food and it's 45 minutes away from the nearest town, right? And so it's not the same <laughs> as glamping over here. So yeah, Connor, always- do you, you want to you weigh in on the, uh, the F&B wildcard factor when it comes to, to glamping? Yeah, it's it's been something that we've we've put a lot of effort into and in, in looking into the data and it's um, the, the two most looking across all the data that we've gathered across 250 business glamping locations, which includes 700 different unit types. We track whether the units have a private bathroom or not and how many people they sleep and what the unit type is and the location and all these different things. And um, what we found was that having private bathrooms in the unit and whether there was F and B on the property um, are the are the the biggest things from a from a data perspective that make the biggest difference in rate. And we we actually even noticed that F and B did make a bigger difference. And I think it's important to distinguish what exactly that means. And I think when we see a restaurant level quality at a glamping resort, um, and the units have private bathrooms, we're almost always seeing ADR above five hundred dollars. Um, which is pretty awesome. And, but you, you know, you have to have both and, and this might be two, you know, they're serving two or three prepared meals a day. Um, you know, and there might even be like a, a waiter or a server. Um, so they're pretty high quality. And then I think, I think the other thing is having some sort of, some sort of food solution on property is going to be super important because most of the time glamping is super remote. And it's really difficult if you're coming out somewhere for two nights to shop, to like cook on a grill that you don't know to put stuff in a fridge and you, you just, you end up with waste and it's, and it's just, it's a lot of logistics. So your guests, you know, food, water, shelter, right? So if they're coming to your site, knowing that they have a a simple solution to get um, their meals. And I think that's something that they're willing to pay for. And it adds, you know, it adds more revenue to your business as well. So it's, 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 it's not easy, but it's super important. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would love to see what the future of, again, it's probably just getting started in, in Iceland specifically, right? But I, I, would, I could see food and beverage options there at $1,500, $2,000 a night easily because of the surrounding options. But like, I don't know, have any of you ever been to Iceland? Not yet, just Norway three times. Hey! <laughs> Every time I have an opportunity to go to Iceland, I'm like, yeah, but I could go back to Norway. <laughs> I mean, no, there's nothing wrong with Norway. Nobody's saying Iceland's better or worse. But that was one of the other things with us. If you haven't been to Iceland, most of the restaurants don't open until like 11, 1130 in the morning. 
So if you don't have food and beverage when you're glamping or breakfast in your hotel, you're kind of out of luck. You're going to have to wait to eat. I would be really curious to hear from Chris. Chris, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, obviously, you've sat down and had a lot of great conversations with your guests. Do you guys offer, I know you you mentioned you do the barbecue thing. What's the F&B solution there and what are, what are you seeing firsthand? Well, I would say it's a, it's, it's something we just can't, or we don't want to provide F and B. I mean, we, 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 we will, fair. the more, the more we looked into it, th- th- that would be hard. I would have to partner up with maybe a vendor in town and we're only two miles from town. So we could do that, uh, but that would take some effort to, to provide that. The people who did buy the Colorado cookout, they were people who were, uh, you know, like an Iceland or something. They just, they just didn't want to, Go out and shop. Uh, they didn't want to go out to eat either. They were maybe yeah. maybe shopping up. They just, hey, having dinner right there on the porch, the patio, and and the grills right there, so I could just grill up the meal that you know the Jew family made for them, uh, which I they, think is perfect for your audience. As you yeah. mentioned, escaping Denver and Colorado Springs, getting out of their apartment for the weekend, they don't want to cook. Right, right, and they wouldn't mind, and they don't mind uh, doing something on the grill. So. Uh, we did s'more packs too for a while, where we would put a fifteen dollars s'more uh, marshmallow and graham crackers and chocolate together uh, for them. Connor looks um, like he wants to try to talk you out of whatever you're saying. I'm not. Oh there. no, I was just gonna no. say, <laughs> did you did you stop doing the s'mores pack and did you stop doing the Colorado cookout and why? Uh, the Colorado cookout um, became it's just labor intensive, and and mm-hmm. so we still while well, we still provide it on Hip Camp, uh, so we have it as an extra on Hip Camp, but we don't really advertise it in our in our book uh we advertise the wine tastings and it's that's and if they if we aren't able to make our schedules line up which sometimes happens uh we will just get get them with two bottles of wine and say here you go and they're for 30 bucks they're they're they're, they like that this homemade wine is really very very good and um uh and then yeah the colorado cookout was just labor intensive that's why and it, it depended on what we had in the freezer too that's <laughs> what we had mm. and and i don't um and i don't know if permitting was would be an issue on that one that that is something we didn't explore with wine we did get permitted with a bnb license so we can gift our 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 people with wine and we wouldn't get in trouble with the uh with the state on that um because it is alcohol uh we, we do have a we do have a non-alcoholic version we have homemade kombucha uh, so we make our own homemade kombucha, and our family just makes that. So we drink kombucha. I'll take some of that too, please. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then, <laughs> so that's something we gift them too. So if they're not, we say wine or kombucha. Um, and sometimes they show up with both, and, and we taste it and get to know each other. So yeah, for, yeah, I know that. Well, I, I was going to say there's there's different entry levels, and I've, I've found this in all the glamping community or glamping discussion groups that, that I'm in. There's just different levels to enter into. I'm, I feel like I'm a level two uh, or maybe three because I have two properties. Uh, but don't but you I'm, feel like as the glamping guy, you should be sinking a couple million dollars in here and leading the industry on your YouTube channel, Chris? Someday. I don't want to put you on the spot. But. My days are numbered. So level level one would be the tent in your backyard type of type of person where I stood up, where I started out. Level two is really more than one unit. You know, you're, you're, you're starting to treat it like a business. Uh, level three would be more like multi-properties. And I feel like I'm just starting that with two properties. We do have a third one in the, in the making because now I'm, well, the, the whole thing with the Colorado cookout, and the wine tastings, that's not scalable. You know, that that's dependent on, on me. So I want a property manager to come into that second property and bring their, their food and beverage solvent solution to that and so somehow some way they will they will come and they go hey this is this is my school and why did you make wine and kombucha and that's what we do <laughs> we 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 are we are wine drinkers and we're kombucha drinkers so we will we will gift our 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 guests with that uh the the property owner that we're we're we still got some uh, some ideas on um or the property manager for the for next year they might bring um i don't know what though homemade homemade bread or something, which might be a thing that they will gift their guests somehow coming in. It's not a campsite with like 40 units. It will be a camp. This will be a glamp ground with 12 units on this property. And so, so what can we do to, to, to make it a host experience so that people get to know their hosts as much as they want to get to know them 
uh, without overwhelming the host or overwhelming the guests. Well, yeah, so this, this is interesting. This is interesting to me, Connor and Zach. If you weigh <laughs> in on this, right? What is there a middle ground here between full yeah. food and beverage, no food and beverage, and maybe even like a curated partner with three re restaurants that are really nice, and you come and take that food and put it in a nice presentation. Oh, yeah, there's, there's so many ideas yeah. In there. Yeah. What What I would say is. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think that this is one area in the industry where we're actually starting to see a lot of inroads being made, a lot of innovation. You know, we're, we're seeing companies like Adver Kitchen that are, are coming to the space saying we want to help operators specifically solve their F&B problem or their, their challenges on their on their glamp site um, and focusing on this industry. Um, I think, you know, just like you described, Chris, um, where in this case, you're, you're making the wine, you're producing the wine, you're leading the discussion, that's it's very labor intensive. Uh, now there's value to it, and it's part of what you're, you're creating and selling to your guests. Um, but you know, you, then you, you brought up the perfect point, is how, how do we scale that? How, how do we you know, increase that? And, and maybe that becomes you know, partnering with a winery that they're doing that anyway. And then seeing, you know, hey, maybe on Fridays and Saturdays, could we get, could, you know, could we just contract this with you and get one of your employees to come out and lead this in a, a larger group setting where instead of you being direct one-on-one -on -one with just one single guest and, and leading this two-hour long experience, um, it, instead it becomes a communal thing and you're bringing in a partner from outside that already does that. It's part of their business and facilitates it. Um, you know, we've we've seen glamping operators that say, hey, there's this thing I'd like to offer that's that's um, a value add and, you know, an additional guest experience. The, the one example I would give is um, massage, um, where they said, you know, what, we're going to create a space for it. We're going to build a platform. We're going to put up a tent. Um, and, and we have this local person that does massage therapy. And we're going to add that as a, you know, an add-on to any of our guests that while they're staying with us, they can book the massage. But then that booking is sourcing out to you know a, another platform for that partner that they use and then when they get those appointments those bookings through a unique link they know okay this one is is out at the glass site um and so they'll you know stack two or three appointments up and they're just going to come out and provide that service that experience on the property um but it it offloads it from the operator having to to do all of those things um, you know, I think there's also in this industry, it's somewhat unique that um, certainly those premium guest experiences, yes, people are demanding the, the service, the, the staff, the, you know, everything that comes along with that. But I think that it doesn't have to, it's not a binary decision. It doesn't have to be that extreme or nothing. Um, you know, I think, you know, your, your concept of like the meal kits, I think that's brilliant. You know, there's there's certainly some basic meals and, and really even some things that can create a high-end guest experience that don't have to be super labor intensive. Um, yeah. You know, my family, my, my, we tell my kids all the time that they're growing up spoiled rotten because one of their favorite dinner meals to request is a charcuterie board. And my wife is an incredible cook and, and she does it. I don't right, want to right? get anybody, Zach, but maybe it's possible. <laughs> You know, we've got five, six kinds of cheese on there and olives and crackers and, you know, prosciutto and, and salamis and all that. But, but that's something that, you know, you could make up 10 or 15 of those um, ahead of time. They get covered um, and, and really even, and I've said this, I think I've said this before on the show, but um, I think part of that perceived value, right? When you make it optional, when you add all these add-on things, it can start to feel like, you know, the, the hotel, like, God, if I take this out of the mini bar, they're going to charge me $10 for two ounces. Right. Um, and so I think there's, there's a certain threshold of things that you just want to provide. Just like you said, you know, we, we include the wine. You're not charging them extra for the wine. That's, that's our gift. Right. And if you got to raise your ADR by $10 a night to cover whatever that is that you're giving them, do it. Um, because the, the perception of value is, God, when we showed up, they had, they had this little basket on all these snacks. They had bottles of water. We got a bottle of wine. Like, you've created the perception of, of a higher value. 
even though it's built into your ADR, your price. Um, but I think certainly for some of those things, having those optional add-ons that is something that you can prepare ahead of time or work with a, a local restaurant to prepare ahead of time um, that you can easily stock and just, you know, before they check in, pop it in the mini fridge and it's, it's there waiting for them, right? They have to unwrap it and they, they've got snacks or they've got something easy that they can munch on that night. Um, the next step up, I would say, is those off-site partnerships where, you know, like you said, you're two miles from town, right? So pick your two, pick your three restaurants that, that you want to partner with. Have the menus in the room where, where people can look and see, well, where do we want to go? Um, and, and have an online booking or, or um, you know, yeah, offer that, hey, we'll, whatever, we'll right? call in a reservation. Yeah, it's in your app, right? Like, um, you know, and, and we're, we're a connected world today. You know, people in an area like that where you've got restaurants two miles away, um, they can door dash something out to their site if they really want it. So I think in some cases, some instances, depending on your location and what's around you, um, there's not as much of a, a prevalent need to create that. And I, I think, you know, what Connor was getting at with, with that point of how important this is, <clears throat> if you're in an, a location where you don't have it two miles down the road, now we have to create it on the site. We have to have more of those options available or we have to include it in the stay because it is important in it. It's part of that overall guest experience and keeping people comfortable. All right. So we've got solved, right? We're running over on time. So we got to wrap it up a little bit, but we've got this solved. We got high end solved. We got mid tier solved and then low end. <laughs> I think Vidar was talking about throwing axes. We could just put some free range chickens on some land and have them go hunt their dinner, right? If they want to save enough money. <laughs> so. <laughs> We're just, again, MC Fireside Chats has solved the world's problems during an hour of the show. <laughs> so uh, anybody else have any final thoughts before we head off for the... Yeah, I wanted to pick it there because I think we're, we're, we've identified a market a market idea here that the market is demanding this. I, I, I got to follow Dickens, through. Dickens or are you going to say something else? No, it's uh, just locally. There's a, a, a local they, they make skiers mm -hmm. pee is what they call it. So I'm riding off of skiing. This is skiing country. And um, and they make a beer called Skiers Pee. It's, it's the funniest thing. People love popping it open. Say, oh, I'm drinking Skiers Pee, and they drink it. It's kind of kind of funny. But they're a local brewery, and they dropped off just the other day a, a bunch of brochures. They want me to put it in the glamping sites. And the, the thought is, is that you know the 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 Chamber of Commerce loves me to death. I mean, they just can't get enough of of Monument Glamping bringing people into Monument Colorado and visiting the rest. Restaurants and the and the breweries and the and the, the wine every everything here. So I, I guess I'm I've got what I'm going to do. This is my this is my commitment to all you guys. I'm, I'm making a vow tonight uh, to to follow thirty seconds with that to make really your commitment. Leverage those Go ahead. Local businesses. Okay, I'm gonna I'm going to follow through with that and connect with these these local businesses and tie them to my glamping operation, and because I think that's a scalable route. Mm. The other thing is, Chris, there's, it's a partnership, right? So it's not just you funneling your guests to these businesses. Um, we've, we've seen arrangements where you say, you know what, I'd love to do that. Can you get me a coupon for 10% off for all of our guests? And it's, it's going to have monument glamping on it so that even on the back end in, in their side, they're collecting those coupons. They're coming back and saying, gosh, you know what? We saw yeah. 45 tables this month that came from we got 45 coupons in and then you know you, you can ask percent off coupons for me and, yeah. and left on my doorstep so that she wants she wants to make that connection herself as a business owner yeah All right, we got, we and, got and i think you as a business owner can get something on the back end of that too you know whether that's hey we'll we'll kick you a hundred dollar gift card once a month or or you know we'll you know give you a certain x amount of dollars for each referral that that actually pans out for us right all right. I appreciate you all. I'd love to talk to you for another hour. I'm sure Connor and Zach and Vidar and Chris at least have something important to do. I don't, of course, but I uh, really appreciate it. It was a great discussion. Like I, I think we maybe need to have another discussion about food and beverage in the future because there's all kinds of different things we could talk about there and expand on that topic. But any final parting thoughts before we go? Yeah, have me have me back on, Brian. I'd lo I'd love to keep talking with you. you guys. Are you guys are geniuses in the field? So I I really enjoy. They are. Don't include me in that bundle. Oh, I'm you are, Brian. Oh. Talk yourself. I just go to conferences and I talk to people and I retain. 
Brian, Brian's the sticky glue that holds us all together. Oh yeah, yeah. That's it. yeah. I um, Brian, I, I would say off of when you're a kid. That's the that's who I am. <laughs> I would say I think it'd be great to dedicate uh, an episode one month to F and B. Um, and mm. I've I've even got some folks I think that would would be good guests to have on for that. Yeah, we had John from Outbound Kitchens on way before he apparently got big. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you for being on another episode of MC Fireside Chats, our glamping episode. Especially appreciate Vidar super late over there in the UK. Vidar, where can they check out and learn more about Nordic Glamping? Uh, you can check my uh, website. So that's nordicglamping.co.uk or uh, check it out on Facebook or Instagram. That's all right. Awesome. Well, I wish you much success. Uh, I'm yeah. sure that, well, hopefully someone will come and buy some of your amazing hand good quality <laughs> yeah it'd be interesting to to sell some to you guys over there that would be cool mm. i mean i feel like it's definitely a unique proposition so hopefully all right so mm. thank you chris for being a special guest as always connor and zach for yep. coming back for another episode and we will see you next week for our can't run under focus episode till then take care guys appreciate you cool all right thank you Cheers. thanks brian bye Thanks for watching this episode of MC Fireside Chats, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. Have a suggestion for a future show or want to see your campground or company as part of an episode? Email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Join us next week for another episode. And don't miss the latest outdoor hospitality news and commentary from around the world at moderncampground.com.